Amen. You may be seated. I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles um, to John chapter 9. This morning you can also find this text in um, your booklet along with a brief outline of today's message. Over the past several weeks we have had the opportunity to look at the solas of the Protestant Reformation and the biblical foundation for each one. Today we're taking one last look at the major themes of the Reformation with a statement that some have come to call the very battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. That statement is, of course, post tenebras lux, or out of or after darkness, light. The idea was when the reformers reclaimed the word of God and transmitted it to the people of God in the language of the common man, they were brought out of spiritual darkness or blindness into the light of God's grace. This is really what the Reformation was about. If you think about it, when we covered the solas of the Reformation, nothing less than salvation itself was at stake. And for many, they were able for the first time to hear and to receive God's truth because they could understand it. It was literally like being born blind and then being given sight. And we see this clearly in Scripture, but particularly in our text for this morning, noting the differences in light and darkness, blindness and sight, being lost, being found in Jesus Christ. With that in mind, I invite you to turn your attention to our text as we hear Jesus himself declare these truths for us. This morning I'll be reading in John chapter 9, and I'll read the first seven verses. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand together and he's promised us it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Would you once again go with me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon this time? Our Lord and our God, we pray for your guidance this morning. We pray that you would block out of our minds the weariness and the heaviness of the week past or the potential troubles of the week ahead. We pray that in this short time together that we would focus fully our attention upon you 
and specifically the finished work of Christ upon the cross and how he brings light and sight to the blind and to those who wander in the dark. Father, without your spirit, this will not be accomplished. And so we ask that hearing we may hear and seeing we may see and listening we may believe your word this morning as only the Holy Spirit can do. We petition you for these things, Father. And lastly, I ask, O Lord, if there anything be said this morning from myself that is not in accord with your word and your truths, may you erase it from the minds of your people this day. I pray all of these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. I think far too often we take for granted that each of us have the ability to carry a Bible with us wherever we go. I will admit there was a moment very early on in my ministry that was a, um, a shifting point. It really was a, a marker for me in how seriously I took the preaching of the word. I was in a small church in Columbus, Mississippi, and I was uh, preaching and I noticed a, a lady sitting um, in the congregation and she was writing furiously um, in the margin of her Bible. Curious about this, I asked her afterward, um, would you share with me what you wrote? I'm, I'm very interested in this. Um, I am reserved when it comes to writing in books, um, just so you know it. It takes a lot to get me to that place. And so I wanted to know what, what got her here. And she said, oh, I always write down um, your sermon text and title and your major points and anything you say so that I can bring it up later and compare it to the word of God. That floored me. That, that floored me that, that someone would, one, listen to what I'm saying, and then two, would write it down in their Bibles so that again and again and again, year after year, they could come back to it. Um, and it, it created a real, real fear of God in me um, that, that one Sunday, and I'll never forget that Sunday because it made me realize that as a minister, people are listening. And what you say matters. Now, the blessing is, and I'm so grateful that we live in a time, if I say something that's not in accord with God's word, you have the ability to check God's word um, through technology um, such as the internet and, and through the printing press, going back to the Reformation, you can go to commentaries and you can listen to other pastors and you can listen to theologians and you really can discern with a pretty good feel of accuracy what God's word is meaning today. But that wasn't always the case that hasn't always been true in the church's history. Imagine having a priest in the time of the Reformation who didn't know God's word and was not faithful in his charge as a priest. We don't have to think very hard to realize how dangerous that would be, not only for his soul, but for the soul of those who were listening. Well, Jesus records for us this scene in John's Gospel where he notices a man born blind from birth. This man, being born blind from birth, would have, since birth, been at the mercy of society. He would have been unable to care for himself in most ways that would be needed for his well-being. And the disciples, they engage in this interesting conversation with Jesus, uh, trying to understand what happened. And yet, what we see is, and what Jesus will tell us in a moment, he is the cure for this man. He is the cure 
for spiritual blindness. He is the cure for a misunderstanding or misrepresentation of God's word. He is the light of the world. And so once again, we think about that statement, out of darkness, light. And so really what we're going to talk about this morning is Jesus. Really what we say when we talk about the Reformation, when we talk about these tenets, as we've gone through various texts thinking about grace and faith and Christ and salvation and God's glory is Jesus. We're going to see Jesus this morning in two ways in our text. In the first four verses, we're going to see that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign in all things. And then secondly, in in verses 5 through 7, we're going to see that Jesus claims to be the light of the world. And not only does he claim to be so, he proves it. And as he proves it, he demonstrates why he is necessary for everyone today. So let's take our time walking through this passage, seeing God's sovereignty and seeing that sovereignty fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And I want to do so this morning by contrasting a few things. Let's begin by contrasting, um, comparing and contrasting of the difference in light and in darkness. And if you think about it, the Bible both begins and ends with a conversation of light. Um, we could go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Light is good. It is good because it is made by God. It is good because it separates light and darkness. We could go to the end. Revelation chapter 21 to also get a commentary on light. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. There came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. And then if we jump down to verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is a lamb. By its light will nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here, the word light represents the very presence of God. God himself in the new heavens and the new earth. He will be the light of that place. To the point there will be no need for sun, moon, and stars. Darkness can also have several meanings according to Scripture. Darkness is the absence of light, or it's one way or the other. Um, those of you with a science mind can help me later on that. I get them backwards. Um, but if there's light, there's not darkness. If there's darkness, there's not light. The two are not compatible Darkness can also represent fear of the unknown. And there's a lot of people today, probably some of you, 
who suffer from conditions known as nyctophobia or scotophobia, which according to my psychiatrist, Lucy from the Peanut series, is the technical term for afraid of the dark. Now, why is it that some people have a fear of the dark? For me, it's the unknown. It's, it's not the dark itself, it's what may be in it. It's the thing that it conceals. It, it's the potential for something negative to be there, to happen, to, to come at me without being able to prepare myself. Darkness veils the world around us. It makes things difficult to find. One way we could describe it is darkness is mystery. It is unknown. And we find ourselves often afraid because of this understanding of darkness. Well, in the context of our text today, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so an understanding of light and darkness is to understand Jesus Christ himself. Now, in our particular passage, Jesus is proclaiming this during the feast or festival of tabernacles, which celebrated the end of harvest and reminded the Jews about Moses and the desert wanderings. The disciples notice in this season a man born blind. Jesus notices he was blind from birth. They wouldn't have known that. And as they're walking, the disciples see this man and they have pity on him maybe. Or maybe they see a man and they think, how greatly has he sinned that God cursed him this way? Remember, Jews were not to, to, to deal with sinners or with unclean people, and maybe that was their assumption, that this man was unclean because of his sin, and he was punished, rightly so, and so we should steer clear. We should avoid this man, or maybe they felt sorry for him, this poor man. In fact, later they're going to ask, who sinned? Was it him, or is it his parents? Who do we need to cast a scornful mind toward in this situation? This would have been on their mind because they were thinking about Israel. And when you think about their wandering in the desert, what comes to mind but their sin, their disobedience, their unwillingness to follow the will and desire of God. And so God said, that's fine. For 40 years, you will wander. You will think about me without any other hope of anything else. And so this idea of sin was, was permeated in the minds of the disciples and it led to this conversation. But Jesus, he goes a different direction entirely. Jesus does not entertain their question, or he does in his own way. He says, this man is blind so that the works of God might be at display. This man is blind for my glory. This man is blind because of me. We could sum it up in that statement. That's a pretty bold statement to make, and I wouldn't encourage any of us to make it because we're not Jesus, but Jesus can. Jesus is claiming that this situation and this circumstance was for him. And I ask you this morning a very serious question, and one I think we should really take to heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your own life, in your own circumstances, that God could bless you with difficulty for himself? Could God be glorified in your hardship? Could God be glorified in a negative aspect, a negative character effect or defect, if you will? Could God create you in such a way that he'd be glorified in 
you endure it well? I believe the answer to that is yes. I believe we see that in this passage. And I believe that's exactly what he's teaching the disciples. Well, Jesus further challenges their mindset. He doesn't leave them to consider this. He gives them a a statement, a statement about how we should use what we've been given. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming. When no one can work. Jesus, once again, goes back to that conversation on light and darkness, that, that contrast. And here, specifically, Jesus is referring to the last days. Night is coming. There will come a time when no one can work. You must work while the sun shines. As I was told growing up, you must make hay while the sun is shining. Jesus is speaking to these last days and he is preaching of the importance of sharing God's word and of taking each day as a gift and not for granted. For these days end quickly, don't they? They come too fast. And the older we get, the faster they seem to go. I know I'm only in my 30s, but I'm, I'm beginning to appreciate that. Many of you have been telling me that for some time, and it, it's starting to set in. You must work while there is daylight, for night is coming. What does that mean as it relates to who Jesus is? What does that mean in this understanding of light and darkness? Well, Jesus tells us what it means. One, it means God is sovereign. God has created a set amount of days. God has a specific plan, and that plan will be carried out. The, the moment it comes time for night, it will be night. We also know that this man was blind because of God. That God would be glorified in it. Thirdly, we know that the disciples in this moment are showing their ignorance so you and I can come to understanding. Something we don't often appreciate is we get a commentary on the lives of the disciples. I will be the first to admit, I really hope God does not have a book up Uh, In heaven, it's the life of Aaron, that you may be sanctified. Here are all his faults and failures, but we've got it for the disciples. They show severe lack of sight in this passage, and that is contrasted versus this man who was born blind. But before we get to that, I want you to hear the statement, Jesus is the light of the world, and let's hear him tell us himself. Look with me at the second half of our passage. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, the book of John is beautiful in that we get eight statements, I ams, eight declarations from Jesus about himself, in which each of these, he tells us a little bit about who he is and what he came to do. And here he says, I am the light of the world. Now, he, he prefaces that with as long as I am in the world, I don't think that puts a a time restraint on Jesus being light. I think, again, he's thinking about his death. I think he's thinking about the last days and final judgment. Um, He is putting in their minds that there is finitude to, to some things, that some things are finite. But Jesus is eternally the light of God. Jesus will forever and always be the light of God and the light of the world And Jesus is making a very important statement here. He illuminates darkness. Remember that contrast earlier. He dispels the fear of the unknown. 
He unveils what's hidden in the shadows. He is truth, and truth with it brings clarity. It's for these reasons that the statement, post-Tenebrock's lux, or out of darkness light, became so important to the reformers. The people were left to stumble in the darkness due to those in leadership refusing to be beacons of light. Lord willing, this year we will be able to have a candlelight Christmas service on Christmas Eve. We've already begun the planning stages for that. And one of my favorite aspects of that service is when we turn all of the lights off and we have the candles lit. And I go, or one goes to that Christ candle and they take one little light, one little candle, and it's very dark. And they go down and and they share that with just a few people. And that is passed to the right and to the left. That's passed to neighbor and to friend. Um, That's passed to visitors and family members alike. And what happens, at least from this perspective, I wish that you could see it, it the, the light becomes overwhelming. It, it quickly swallows up the darkness. It, it quickly shifts from a time of what is going on to, oh, there it is. I can see. And that, my friends, is what the gospel does. The gospel, Jesus Christ coming, living, dying, rising again, sharing that truth with the twelve to go to 11, to go back to 12, and then spreading out to the known world. And it was spread to the known world at that time. We start at the center and we work our way out, and that's what light does. Light radiates from the point. It shines around it and illuminates it. And that's what Jesus is claiming to be here. That is what Jesus claims to do. And that may be a well and good enough statement on its own. But maybe you're like the disciples are many times. That's fine, Jesus. Can you prove it? That's a great statement, Jesus. I, I like what you're saying here, but can you, can you show me? I, I'd like to get some understanding. They may not have explicitly said it, but that's what they're thinking. And we know that because Jesus gives them what he does next. Having said these things, he spits on the ground and made mud with the saliva Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus makes a paste from his saliva and dirt from the ground and anoints this man's eyes with this mixture and tells this man who's been blind from birth, Go and wash. Now, I don't know how he got there. Maybe he had friends with him. Maybe he crawled his way there. Maybe Jesus himself took him. Um, That one's unlikely, but we know that this man was blind. We know that this man was told to go and wash. We know that this man went and washed. But I want you to catch something in this text. It's it's the most important aspect of this story, um, as, as brief as it is. Jesus has just educated the disciples on the difference in light and darkness. This in and of itself is a discussion on spiritual sight versus spiritual blindness. The disciples saw a man who in their minds deserved what he got. Either from him or from his parents, someone sinned and he was struck blind. It's it's, um, a a kind of karmaic transaction here. Someone did something and here's the effect. Cause and effect. This shows severe spiritual blindness on this on behalf of the disciples. Disciples who have been with Jesus for some time now. 
who have heard the sermons, who have witnessed the miracles, who have walked alongside, who have listened to the prayers, and at times shown great faith and strength. And yet here they cannot see because they are the ones that are blind. In contrast, Jesus commands a blind man to go and wash after being covered, being covered in spit slash mud. And what does he do? Most important part of the text. What happens? He goes. He goes. A man he's never seen, a man he's never heard from before, comes and claims to have authority by commanding him. And what does he do? He responds. And how do we know what happened? He came back seeing. He came back and had sight. Jesus said, go, and he went. This man, though he may have been spiritually or physically blind, spiritually he was alive. This man had such faith. How much faith would it take being born blind from birth, probably having tried everything possible. Maybe he's tried to get to this pool before and he couldn't make it in time. He couldn't get there. Others crowded him out of the way. He couldn't see. And yet this time, Something was different. Why? Because Jesus told him, go. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's the light of the world. Dear brothers and sisters, we need this message today. We desperately, desperately need to consider the severity of spiritual blindness in the world. Jesus Christ does many miraculous things. Bringing people back from the dead, healing disease, curing fever, restoring sight, reattaching ears. But more than that, he changes hearts. He changes lives. He transforms people from the inside out. Lazarus died twice. I don't know if you thought about that. The man died twice. He went through it twice. That's pretty miraculous. Jesus brought him back. I would love to, I, I hope I can talk to Lazarus in heaven. I, I really want to get his perspective on it because I, if it had been me, why God? I'm, in, I'm with Jesus. I'm with God the Father. Why, why bring me back to this world? You know, Matthew records a similar account of Jesus healing a person and he tells us these words. I, I find them beautiful. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God. It's fantastic that Jesus healed many people. And I'm not trying to diminish that aspect of his ministry, for it was in fulfillment of prophecy and it was good. But I'm telling y'all, the most miraculous thing we read in the scriptures is that the gospel message transforms lives and that sins are forgiven. One of the last miracles we see from the Apostle Paul is in Acts 20 in the raising of Eutychus from the dead. It's one of my favorite places in all of scripture. I love that passage. Eutychus listens to a 12-hour sermon by Paul and, of course, falls asleep at about midnight. He falls out the window and dies. Paul runs down, we're given one verse, he runs down, he hugs him, he goes back upstairs, and what does he do? He finishes the sermon. He finishes the sermon. And then at the very end, in, a, in almost a tagline, and the boy walked away unharmed. And then from then on, we don't see Paul perform any more miracles. Why? Because at that moment, 
For those people, the preaching of the word was the miracle. The preaching and the hearing of the word was greater than this child being risen. That's what they needed. That's what you and I need today. We need to see the light. We need to get out of the darkness. We need to see God for who he is and what he came to do. I think in, of all of scripture, one of the ways this is most beautifully displayed is actually to go to the beginning of John. John chapter 1, and if you'll allow me, I want to just read that for you. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as only of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I can make no greater promise than that this morning. I can tell you nothing more important that you need this in your life. And so I close by asking, can you say this morning that you've walked out of darkness into light? And if that's not your case, if that's not your story, if you're here or you're listening and that's not you, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of groping in the darkness, hoping not to stumble, hoping not to fall, hoping not to mess things up on your own and end up in a worse circumstance than when you began? Then trust in God. Trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, for he says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will see because I see. These words transformed people in the 1500s and the 1600s, and it continues to do so today. I pray that that battle cry post Tenebrock's Lux is your battle cry as well. Out of the darkness, light. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what joy it is to hear your word this morning. What joy it is to proclaim these truths, to celebrate who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Father, it is often we get ourselves in trouble when we trust in our own self, when we Stop looking toward the light and instead turn toward our own well-being, our own well-doing. And we stumble and we fall and we trip because we're trusting our own self instead of you. Oh, that everyone here and everyone listening truly would rest in you and you alone for their hope, for their security, for their salvation. I pray that we would all proclaim 
we have come out of the darkness into the light. And that can only be accomplished by clinging to the finished work of Christ Jesus himself for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray, Lord, that this be so in Christ Jesus' name, in his name alone. Amen.